Okay, everybody, welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Vantage Point. Now, it's Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021, and I'm your host, Justin Nielsen, and on today's show, we are welcoming Matt Caruso back to the show. Uh, Matt was on earlier uh, in in the year, back in March, so if you want to take a look at that podcast, it's a good idea to refresh your memory on what Matt Caruso is all about. He's also the president of Caruso Investments and starting a new product called Caruso Insights, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But Welcome back to the show, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back, uh, Justin. Absolutely. So, um, so a few things that we're going to get into today. We're, of course, we're always going to start with the markets. Dive into that a little bit. What's going on with the markets currently? Um, we're going to talk about how this last year or so has been a little bit of a microcosm uh, for investing lessons, and also some. In the second segment, we'll talk a little bit about these numbers behind the numbers and the shades of gray. So Matt has a lot of insights there. And of course, as always, we're going to end with a few stock ideas from Matt. So uh, again, thanks for being here, Matt. Let's go ahead and get right into it. We've got you know mild distribution relatively. It's, it's not getting too bad. I mean, we did have a lot of distribution days kind of start piling up there, but we are still in an uptrend. We've gotten to new high territory. And even though we've you know kind of closed well off the highs today, it was a pretty pretty tight spread uh, between you know, the highs and lows today. And we are still in that new high ground. And more importantly, we're above that 14,000 level. So what's your take on the market right now, Matt? Absolutely. So I see this, this kind of reminds me back in 2019, late in the year, there was the whole trade war worries and we kind of went sideways for a few months. And from, from that point, we kind of walked into new highs and started a nice stair step higher right into the, uh, the, the, you know, the COVID situation. And that kind of, uh, I, I get a, a real strong sense whenever I've seen these, you know, several month sideways consolidations in the market without any, you know, severe news coming up or a Federal Reserve tightening, they tend to resolve to the upside. And I think you're starting to get signs of that because if you look at the growth stocks, which typically signal some risk on, those have really been leading in the past week. So I think the Federal Reserve last week kind of changed the dynamics of the internals of the market, and uh, which I think is great for the NASDAQ and especially great for growth oriented investors. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, a lot of a lot of people, especially when they're first starting out, can get very disheartened. I mean, this has not been an easy market if you've been trying to play things uh, the last couple months. If you've been in the right areas, energy and uh, materials and you know things like that, not our typical growth, but more of the cyclical, you may have been doing fine. But if you've been in growth, you've been getting smacked around a little bit the last couple months. I think this whole past year, this this is the perfect study year. Uh, for anybody to go back and review because within the span of you know 12 or 14, 15 months, we've seen almost everything. You've seen a crash, you've seen a dramatic rally, you've seen internal rotations. Uh, everything seems to be happening at super speed. So even last year off of the, the COVID bottom, you saw stocks usually that would you know show the returns after several months, they, uh, several years, they were doing those returns in several months. And I know in other cycles that I've traded, typically growth will lead for, you know, for, for a good amount of time, probably a year or two, and then energy and cyclicals will take over. And, and this whole past year has been, you know, wham, big rotation into, into growth off the bottom, then rotation into cyclicals. And growth, in reality, went into a bear market after February of this year. It's, it's right. not really highlighted on the, the indexes, but if that's your niche market that you're focused on, if you weren't prepared for that, that second bear market that's not shown in the indices, you could have gotten very hurt, especially given the uh, size of the moves. So um, this past year, just the rotations have been so violent, and it's just the perfect microcosm for anyone who wants to really get a quick education on how the market uh, you know, transitions from segment to seg- segment in a market cycle. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, one of the things that was really kind of masking the weakness, uh, it was really a lot of those COVID plays, a lot of those high growth names that were getting pretty, pretty decimated, you know, well below their 200 day moving average lines. Um, but what was kind of making the NASDAQ not look quite as bad was the whole idea of the some of the big cap names like Google and Microsoft right. and Amazon. Those were kind of propping up. I mean, they have such a huge weight in the index. And it was almost like uh, masking some of that weakness that was underneath. So sure, if you were in those, you were maybe not noticing. But if you were in the old names or trying to play those uh, on weakness, buying on dips, I mean, that, that was a good way to get destroyed. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you have to always stay tuned into the market because that leadership start, starts to change as one sector is topping. I mean, you know, you have nice profits that you're sitting on. You're, you know, you're, you're looking at an oil stock, which is not really too exciting when you're in these technology stocks changing the world. But that transition starts to happen slowly as, you know, funds or large investors start to slowly scale out of these growth winners and, to, and starting to buy cyclicals. And so, you know, the marketplace is somewhere where you have to always be on your toes, always be uh, you know, be be aware of where the money is flowing because sometimes these transitions can be just brutally quick, like we've seen. Mm. To that end, you know, again, a lot of these cyclicals were were really helping the S and P five hundred and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, now, both of those, I mean, are are not showing quite as much strength, but the Dow Jones Industrial Average, I mean, that's now below its fifty day moving average line. Now, granted, it didn't really have much to fall. I mean, it's been a very you know steady right. move, and it, it it's not like that was a a it, it never got quite extended above that 50-day moving average line, so it didn't have much to fall. But are you, you know, seeing weakness here that is concerning, or is it just, hey, it's 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 back to Nasdaq? There's not nothing to see here. I, I think for investors, you know, who usually follow along with Investors Business Daily and are growth-oriented, I think it's almost a good sign mm -hmm. uh, because it shows that rotation back into Nasdaq stocks. And in reality, the way I, I, I keep a very close attention to when the Federal Reserve speaks, to me, that in my, my point of view, that's kind of the earnings report for the market. So sometimes a good earnings report can you know, jolt a stock higher and start a new trend or, or jolt a stock lower and end the trend. I, I find typically the Fed, not always for the market as a whole, but also the internal rotation. So I think it's pretty clear. You can see last week, the Fed was still extremely dovish. And you know they're talking about rates two years out, which is quite a ways away. And so the Dow kind of backed off a bit, but you saw some growth really catch fire in the, in the past week or so, which has been nice to see, uh, you know, from, from our perspective. And, um, you know, typically it's hard to get too negative when there isn't a uh, negative catalyst out there or when the Federal Reserve is not tightening already. I think the old rule used to be three-step stumble. So right. typically once the Federal Reserve, you know, tightens three times, we're talking about tightening only two years from now. So before we get to that three steps, um, I think it's hard to get too negative in a market like this, especially when you're sitting near highs, Even, you know, there may be some rotations, but you really want to just focus on where the money is going and you want to be positioned properly in those sectors. Because in my view, I think, you know, the Federal Reserve is really the author of bull markets and bear markets. Individual stocks have their own growth trajectories, but as a market as a whole, I think the Federal Reserve is just such a key, uh, you know, uh, organization you have to keep an eye on. So, the fact that, you know, Jay Powell spoke and he's saying, look, everything is going to continue as it's going. We're not tapering. We're pushing, you know, you know, hikes far into the future. I, I think that's that's a great backdrop for the market, especially a Nasdaq coming out of a almost a five month consolidation. Mm -hmm. Now, the the way that financials kind of really, you know, moved. I mean, it was it was really interesting how the reaction was so dramatic for financials. And I, I'm going to go ahead and pull up XLF on 
MarketSmith right now, just to kind of show what we're talking about for those that are watching the video. Um, so you had the you had the move um, uh, by the Fed that the, the Fed talk uh, right right in here, and then the very next day, I mean, it looked like you know financials were getting some strength, but the very next day it was kind of this this feeling of whoosh, you know, where yeah. the financials were were down very very strong. You had um, energy XLE, just as an example, um, was was down pretty strong, but you know, energy and a lot of the oil stocks came back uh, very strongly. Um, does that does that suggest to you anything about like a little bit of a mixture with oil and growth? Uh, and anything to say on that? I, I think oil's in a uh, in a special place right now because you know, given the whole COVID situation, I think there's short term supply constraints. So sometimes the commodity itself is is in its own universe is the way I would look at it. So. I, I think oil specifically is benefiting from that and that's still pushing in that space. But in general, I think like the, the XLF chart you brought up is a lot more concerning. The way you broke through that 50 with big volume and this kind of move up here is, is very a very weak reaction higher after that drop. So for, you know, as a, again, as an index as a whole for the Dow or the S&P, it's not terribly concerning. But if you're heavily invested in this you know, financial sector, that is, it would be a little bit more concerning for me. You, you may not have huge losses because the Fed is so accommodative, but you may sit out you know, potential profits in, in an up leg. Right. Okay. So now let's get back to this idea that you were talking about with, um, with the last couple, you know, I guess, year or so uh, being a microcosm. I mean, I remember that a lot of times we were talking about, hey, you know, bull markets, they last about, you know, a year and a half, two and a half years, your bear markets are about nine months. And uh, you were kind of talking about how all of this got squished uh, together. So what are, what are some of the big lessons that you think? Because a lot of people, I mean, let's, let's face it, a lot of people started out uh, they were, you know, kind of at home, uh, got interested in investing. They started out during this time. Uh, what lessons do you think people should be pulling from it, or how uh, can they capitalize on this kind of uh, moment in time that they were a part of to understand, you know, what's I guess different about that market, and maybe what's the same, just maybe on a different time frame. So I remember when I first started, you know, studying a lot of, about the market. It was almost that four-year cycle they would talk about. It was like clockwork. Work. You could look back at different market environments and see every four years you had a market bottom. They would call it the presidential cycle or, right. or whatnot. But you know that's the thing with the marketplace. You can never be too rigid because the market does um, change. It does, it does you know, alter itself. So if you're sitting there with a clock saying that, okay, we have to go another two years, but some other force kicks in, you have to be able to adapt to that. So I think one of the major lessons that, that you should learn is, is if something went wrong in your investment approach in the, in the past year, you have a problem with your investment approach or, or, or lack of certain rules. So you need those buying rules. You need those hold rules. You know, anyone who bought a winner at the beginning of last year and let it go after two weeks, you know, missed out on a massive opportunity and people sitting with these huge profits, you know, into January, February this year and didn't take those profits only to see them evaporate over the next couple of months. You also need those sell rules. So I think this past year is, is the, the best testing grounds for the system that you're using. If you're new, you know, sit down and, and write out every mistake that you made and what, what can you improve. And even if you're a veteran, this, this even, you know, tested veterans, anyone who was a little sleepy or a little slow to adapt or move, you, you really paid the price for that. So um, it, it was just a, it was a great time, you know, whatever section of the past year you messed up realize there's something that you can make better in your approach, whether you missed a rotation, you missed your holding periods, you missed your sell rules. No, I, that's what I do. I've been spending so much time. I, I made this year, 
the year of relative strength for me. So I, I could really focus to see where the money is going. I, I saw that there was such power behind that last year. And, and every year I like to kind of designate a, an area I focus on. So this past year, I think is just the, the best period to study. Okay. Well, you know what, we're going to get back uh, after the break into that whole idea of what you learned from your own, your own post analysis, uh, some of the numbers and the numbers behind the numbers and those shades of gray. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Do you want to conquer market volatility? We can help you protect your hard-earned capital. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how VantagePoint's AI technology can forecast stock market trends up to 72 hours in advance with incredible accuracy. VantagePoint's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds, so you can finally stop guessing what's going to happen next. Check out www.freestockcoaching.com and experience VantagePoint for free. Learn how successful traders generate their wealth. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Welcome back to Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by VantagePoint. I'm Justin Nielsen, your host, and my guest this week is Matt Caruso of Caruso Investments. So Matt, before the break, we were talking a little bit about this whole idea of post-analysis. What were some of the takeaways that you uh, came away with from your post-analysis of this last year? So one of the, the main takeaways that I had from my post-analysis was just the importance of relative strength. But you know, you want to go beyond the number that we see in, in Investor Business Daily. That's it's great. I use it in all of my scans. Um, it's a go-to that I, I always watch. But there's certain situations, like last year was a, a key situation where if you didn't understand how that number was built, you wouldn't have you know, noticed that there was something wrong with the criteria. By that, I mean, you know, the RS rating looks at stock performance over the past 12 months. So you could have had some stocks that, you know, do, after the COVID bottom rally four or 500% and they have a 99 rating. But then after, as that stock is correcting, maybe significantly and losing its leadership position, you still have that 99 or 98 rating. I mean, some stocks like APPS, uh, or, or Zoom, they still have some really strong RS ratings, but they've really taken quite a hit. So this, you know, has fallen from the the from 102 down to 53 dollars, and we're still sporting a 97. So if you're just scanning, you know, this this comes up as as a leader, but in reality, with the Nasdaq at its highs and this still sitting a significant amount below its highs, it's not really in the leadership position. So one of the key takeaways that I had was you want to also look at how is a stock reacting directly to the index. So rather than just rely on the number, which is one of, you know, a key component, uh, but in this past year, because of these dramatic moves, it could be a little bit deceiving. So what I like to do is also look at, you know, one low on the S&P 500, compare it to a past low and make sure the stock is also acting as strong or stronger than the S&P, regardless of what that number is. So for example, at the end of last year, some, you know, rotations into these electric vehicle stocks, I was, I have to admit, you know, I was never into Tesla. I, I was never a, a huge fan of, of the car. And it's kind of one of those, some people love it. Some people don't. Right. You, I, I wasn't, it, it's either one or the other. There, there's not the usually other. anything I, in between. <laughs> I like muscle cars and other, I like engine noise. So it never appealed to me, but you know what? The strength coming into that sector at the end of last year, I mean, that was a big missed opportunity. And, and so if I would have been, you know, watching a little bit closer, I could have caught some of those great gains. So sometimes your post analysis is not only, you know, where did you lose money, but you know, how did you miss out on a great opportunity? So I, I think going beyond that number and really looking at the price action relative to the index is just such a key uh, component as well. Yeah, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's so many of the rules behind CanSlim that were 
developed because of that post-analysis that our founder, William O'Neill, did. And a lot of times it was a missed opportunity. Uh, the, the one that right. jumps to mind is CertainTeed, where he messed that up. And so he came up with the eight-week hold rule. And then he used that on syntax in 1964 or 1963. And uh, that, was, that was kind of what put him in business. But you know, I want to get back to another point that you made here, because uh, another interesting thing that I did learn from Bill O'Neill in the time that I worked from him was coming out of that 2008 financial crisis bear market, that point that you were making about how you've got the stocks and you compare what they're doing versus the S&P 500, because as I was looking at Bill O'Neill and what he was buying, and I'm gonna go ahead and pull up a chart here and maybe you and I can walk through this together because I think it's a, a really important point here. I'm gonna pull up Apple. If you, you know, look at what was going on here with Apple, and this is back in 2009, um, there were these moments where you had this low in, seven, you know, in January, and then you had a low that wasn't quite as low. So it, it, instead of going down to 78.20, it came down to 82.33. So it held up a little bit better in March. And you, you contrast that with what the S&P 500 did. Look at the difference there. You know, right. you have the January low in the S&P 500, much lower uh, in that March low for the S&P 500. So um, that, that's such a great point, Matt. That, that, and that's a key uh, indicator approach that I like to look at the uh, my stocks at now is, is comparing lows like that. If the market's making a lower low and your stock is not, even if the number is for, let's say, 85, it's not you know sporting that 95 or 99, that's the market telling you that in this correction, they don't want to sell the stock. I mean, what's more powerful than someone not selling a, selling a stock as the market is coming off? Right. And the other, the other way I like to look at it too, because sometimes, like for example, with COVID last year and that crash, the stocks will fall with the market rather dramatically. But another way to look at relative strength is if the market only recovers halfway of its, its correction, but this stock gets right back to the prior highs, I mean, that's a form of extreme relative strength for me as well. And that's how I found a lot of the leaders last year, such as, you know, Livongo and Fastly and Peloton, you know, although they had some pretty significant drops in, in the crisis and the crash, they were right back to their, you know, their February highs or January highs relatively quickly. So Either not falling or bouncing back quicker than the market are, are two really key ways that I like to look at my stocks versus the market. Yeah. And a couple of weeks ago, we we're making the analogy of a toolbox. And I feel like, you know, what you're dealing with here is some specialty tools. You know, you can mm -hmm. you can think of your, your relative strength as your hammer. But uh, if you're going to use some of these nuances that you're talking about, then you've, you've got the difference between a claw hammer, a ball peen hammer, a mallet, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you know, really using the right tool for the job if you can kind of get into some of these nuances that you're talking about. And uh, what about the relative strength line itself? Um, is that something that you uh, pay a lot of attention to as well? So there's, there's one aspect of the line that always kind of bothered me a little bit is, is you know, it's just pretty much the price divided by the, the index itself. So right. The issue I have with that uh, in my, my studies was that these stocks tend to be more volatile than the market anyways. They usually have a beta greater than one. So for example, if the S&P goes up one, typically these tech stocks will go up one and a half or two. So whenever the market is kind of moving upwards, this RS line will, you know, if the stock is climbing, will always point to new highs. But the way I like to kind of dig a little bit deeper and, and I kind of built a, a proprietary way myself where you know, I compare the, the stock relative to its beta to the S&P. So I don't know, it's, it's starting to get a little bit complex, but <laughs> by that I was what told I there would is, be no math. <laughs> <laughs> if, for example, if your stock typically goes up twice the market, well, if, if the stock today is up only one and a half times the market, sure, it's advancing, it's advancing more than the market, but it's still advancing slower than it should be. 
So I guess the best you know, way to look at that is, you know, a pitcher, you know, if a fastball is typically 99 miles an hour, they can throw a, an 85, which is fast for you and I, if we're throwing oh, yeah. a fastball, but, but for that, you know, major league pitcher, it's, it's slower than he should be throwing. So it's, I don't know, it's kind of a, again, another nuance, kind of a, mm-hmm. a really specific part of the tool, but it's another way I try and dig really deep into relative strength and to compare, you know, that stock specific reaction to the market. Well, I guess to a certain degree, it's almost like you're, you're getting that relative strength, but rather than relative to the market, relative to itself versus the market. In a way, it's it's you know, that one beta. step further. So it's, if you mm-hmm. really want to dig deep. So again, it's the year of relative strength for me in my studies. So I've dug as deep as I could. And um, these are some of the, the nuances that I've, I've come up to me in, in my studies. Mm-hmm. So, you know what, uh, this is something that's also very important. I think there's so much learning that can be done when you do some of these studies. Um, so not to get too far off track, but how do you how do you kind of approach your studies? And when you say, hey, you know what, I want to do a deeper dive here. Um, what, what do you start with? Are there any tools that you might suggest for our audience that they could use to kind of do their own studies? So there's, there's two tools I really like to use. One is Marcusmith, just fantastic. It has all the data you would need in there. Uh, another one I use is TradingView. I, I'm not really a great coder. I can, I can do the basics, but they have a function that I like where you can kind of set a condition, simple, it's very simple logical conditions, you know, if this, then that. And it'll highlight on the chart, you know, different colors. So you can visually see very quickly, you know, what the outcomes are of, of the, the conclusions you're trying to build. So I kind of use that as a shortcut for myself to, to kind of speed up. You know, if, if, I, if I have an idea and I think it's a, a bullish setup, but I, I quickly plot it on a chart and I say, whoa, this is not at all what I was thinking would come up, then I kind of move on or, or uh, if it looks great, I'll, I'll focus deeper into it. Right. And one caution I would have for people is, you know, sometimes it's very easy to kind of do a study and you, you look at kind of the aggregate and say, oh, you know what, it looks like this is, this, this rule does much, much better, but sometimes you have to dig a little bit deeper into those instances. Uh, you know, you right. can sometimes have those outliers that are skewing and, you know, I mean, not to get too much into the statistics, but it is important to kind of understand when you're applying something, what it actually did. Uh, and, and so looking well, at one thing that I, one thing I always do when I do a study as well is I go back and I look at the best stocks. And so yeah. I think the two biggest mistakes you can make is one, you take a very big loss on the downside, which Typically, if you cut your losses, should not be a concern. Right. The second largest mistake is missing out on a huge winner. So, you know, I don't care how effective some kind of new tool or approach that I'm working on can be. If I look at a year like last year, and this would have prevented me from having some of these huge winners, well, that to me is, is a critical yeah. error in the approach. So that's why I always take whatever I'm working on. I have a list of, you know, all the past winners going back 20, 30 years, and I'll go one by one. If I say, oh, no, this would have really prevented me from catching a major move. I say that's, that's a critical error and I'll, I'll put it aside or, or I'll try and adjust for it. Yeah. So now let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, beyond relative strength, you know, there's uh, these shades of gray. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when you're looking at, oh, you know what, if, if you want the, the best stocks, they tend to have the earnings growth of, you know, let's say 25% in the current quarter or 25% annual growth uh, for three to five years. Um, but then you find sometimes that there are, uh, some of these rules that it's okay to break them, right? There's always had all these exceptions to the rules. So how do you use kind of your rules? Which ones are, hey, this is black and white. I always follow. And these are the ones where there's a lot of exceptions and I might do something a little different. So what I like to do is is I kind of have non-negotiable rules. So for example, uh, in terms of earnings and sales, actually earnings is actually a negotiable for me. What I like to look at is I I like to look at the company is this a company that is being bought based on sales growth or earnings growth? It's usually pretty easy to tell because, for example, software companies have stellar you know, sales growth, but often are lacking in earnings. So 
you know, they have to, there has to be that strong revenue component, but a stock that's already sporting earnings, I want to see big earnings numbers, big sales numbers, and I want to see record earnings and record sales, or at least a multi-year high. So for example, the energy names, uh, there was so many you could have chosen from. When I was on the podcast last time, I was talking about Denbury, they had reorganized and, and they were sporting oh. record earnings already. Yeah. Whereas so many other energy stocks were, were just trying to get back to some recent years earnings. So why not go with the stock with the absolute best? And that goes back to the founding principles of, of you know, growth investing is, is you want to find something that's new, that is growing. So if by definition, if this stock is not making, you know, record highs in sales or earnings, they're not really growing. So, and that I really believe is what causes these massive moves like William O'Neill obviously wrote about. And, and so those are the non-negotiables. Then there's things like, you know, uh, return on equity and all these other components, uh, up-down volume ratios. That's where the shades of gray come in. And I like to have some shades of gray in my work because, for years, I was a market maker and, and I, I day traded and I like the, the feeling of making decisions. I, I don't like it to be completely robotic. I think maybe at a, you know makes it too boring or takes, takes the fun out of it. But uh-huh. I have those non-negotiables to keep me in the right direction so I can't make any critical errors. And then I use my experience to really dial in to find the stocks that, that work best with my, my understanding in terms of the technical picture and the growth behind the company. So that's the way I like to kind of build a mosaic of putting all the data together and working within the framework of those variables that have to be there. Yeah. So I really like that kind of picture of the mosaic. It's, it's not just one thing. Um, you're, you're putting together a lot of different pieces of the puzzle here uh, in order to get that complete picture. Well, you want to boil it down at the end of the day, what are we all trying to do here? So you're, you're trying to find a stock that's growing aggressively, that has a long runway that will keep growing. And you want to buy that stock at a point where your risk is controlled and your upside is very large. So you want to build a picture to capture that. I think sometimes we get so caught in the weeds of all these indicators and numbers and variables. And, and so what are, what's, if you boil it down to its essence, what are you trying to do? And, and that's what I always, every time I'm looking at a stock, you know, oftentimes it could be a stock with great earnings or great sales, you know, or, or, or a good looking chart. You want to boil it down. Does it, does it check off the idea that is this a, a growth stock with a long runway? Do I have a controlled risk with good upside when I'm purchasing, purchasing the stock? That's the, the key essence of what we're trying to do. Yeah, great, great point. So when we come back, we're going to get into some of the ideas that Matt has on his radar. So make sure you stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Do you feel like you're always late to the best trades? You don't have to kick yourself for those missed opportunities any longer. Today is your day. Vantage Point's artificial intelligence has helped traders of all experience levels with its predictive analysis forecasting. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how their AI automatically recognizes global market patterns well ahead of the news to help you pick the best trade. Go to www.freestockcoaching.com to join a free live training session today. Vantage Point's patented artificial intelligence can give you a massive edge. Don't hesitate. Save your seat now. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Vantage Point. I'm Justin Nielsen, and we have our guest, Matt Caruso. And now, Matt, you are talking a lot about these, um, you know, the post-analysis, all of these things that you've learned, and you've got something coming up that's pretty exciting. You've got Caruso Insights uh, to kind of share some of this education, which uh, you have a background a little bit in education. Right. So uh, when I first started trading professionally, I actually was also an adjunct finance professor uh, here in, in, in Montreal. And I really enjoyed the teaching aspect of it. But, you know, trading gets so busy, I kind of yeah. I couldn't continue going with that. But I decided to start. I noticed what there was a 
the modern way of learning now is, is video courses. And I thought it was a great time to build something where I can go through the entire trading strategy that I employ in a video format that's easy to understand. I think information overload is so difficult with so many books out there and different methods and methodologies that I want to really bring one place where, you know, from mindset to position sizing to when to buy, sell and, and, and portfolio rules to really walk someone through the way I approach the market. So I'm an aggressive trader. I'm an aggressive investor looking for big returns, but with controlled risk. And, you know, I, I love William O'Neill's book. It's, it's the foundation of, of what I use, but just through my own experience, there's a lot of gray areas in there that took yeah. me years to, to kind of patch together. And um, also my experience as a day trader market maker, sometimes, you know, I would see people buying breakouts that are textbook, but as a short-term trader, I'd be probably fading those or selling those. Right. So, mm -hmm. so I, I, I took a lot of the short-term techniques that I use to incorporate within a larger-term strategy to kind of create this holistic way of investing. So I'm, I'm working on that. Hope to have it out next month. And uh, it's an exciting new product I'm working on. Yeah, well, I'm going to be looking forward to checking that out myself. So Thank let's you. get into some of the ideas uh, that you've kind of called here. Um, are there any particular themes um, that you've noticed? Or is it really kind of a, a, mi a mishmash of uh, individual stocks that you've been noticing that seem to be working? Just that whole risk on. It seems really risk on, especially what I like as a good signal. I, I didn't catch many of them because they were just rockets higher, but a lot of the recent IPOs such as TSP or ASAN, um, a GLBE, just rocket ships higher. And that's typically, you know, it's like GLBE IPO'd and was just from day one, a rocket ship higher. So that was that's a real boat of confidence in the marketplace that there's risk on that's taking place. And, you know, these IPOs tend to be a little more volatile and they're kind of difficult to handle without an IPO base. So, I mean, sometimes I take that as a signal to say like, okay, risk on is coming back into the market. Now let's find these great other risk reward opportunities, maybe in, in stocks with proper bases or, or well-defined risk areas. Uh, one of the beautiful things about Roku, like I was speaking about before, is if you look at the fundamentals, I mean, we're talking record earnings in 2021, actually first year of, of positive earnings. 2022 is showing huge growth coming through again. And I, I think Alyssa recently had an interview with the CFO uh, of, of Roku and the story behind it is, is fantastic. I remember when I, you know, one of the first monsters I caught was Netflix uh -huh. and it was a very similar uh, view of that company as Roku. And there is a link between them as well, but I remember no one believed in that story. Oh, you know, Comcast is going to launch their own product and right. you know, uh, they won't renew the, the, um, the con contractual, uh, you know, the contract with Netflix. And Roku has kind of had that same disbelief in the company, whereas, you know, it's just a, a stick that you plug in that people mm -hmm. can watch stuff on. But if you really dig it into the story, they built the operating system for the TV and the amount of ad dollars that are flowing to streaming is just huge. And if right. Roku can become the dominant player there, which I think they could be, because I think the closest competitor is Amazon with the Fire Stick. But the problem with Amazon is a lot of content uh, producers view them as a competitor because they yeah. also do content production. So Roku is in this beautiful middle ground where they're getting all these people coming to their operating system and they get the ad dollars. And it's just, I think it's just a great business model. I think it's still not fully appreciated. And if you look here, I know this has it as a, a cup forming, but I saw more of a double bottom that we mm -hmm. broke out of the past few days. Uh, so that's the way I'm approaching it. And if you flip over to, uh, well, actually first on the weekly chart here, the, the, the low of the base, you saw kind of a huge pickup in volume, but that was pretty supportive action. Yeah. And the week after was also huge volume and we didn't go any lower. So, you know, in my perspective, that's, you know, a big buyer stepped in and said, whatever stock you want to sell, I'm here to take it. And right. that kind of marked the low. 
And uh, with some recent good news, I think we're starting to work strong on the, the right side of the space. Yeah, so just, just so people can kind of get a picture of this in their mind if they're listening to the audio, um, the week that he's talking about is, is this low, and it closed in the 60% range. Whenever something closes in the 40% range or higher, we usually talk about that as being supporting action, especially when it's a really wide week. You see that a lot of price discovery between the high and low of that week with the close in that upper part of the range. And then, as you mentioned, the very next week, um, heavy volume without further price progress on the downside. It all was maintained within that previous week. So an inside week and closing, um, not just in the upper part, but actually in like the 80% range for, for the for the trading week. So yeah, really good nuances there in terms of, you know, it's not just about, oh, look at that heavy volume on the downside. It's, you got to look at the price action and see, was that truly positive uh, price action, right. even though the volume is red? No, that, that's when you, you kind of get beyond the charts and you really want to understand what's the demand and supply. What is the chart saying about demand and supply? So those, those nuances, they seem like nuances, but that's the difference between someone just uh, drawing a, a line on a chart and someone really trying to understand what's going on between buyers and sellers. And that's really the main goal of, of why we use charts in the first place. So this week we're halfway through and it's already up almost 15% for the week. Is right. that something where uh, you feel like this maybe needs to add tack on a handle to the double bottom? Or is it something that, you know, look, the, the breakout is happening right here around 400 round number. Uh, this is something that is still actionable potentially. I think it depends your level of, uh, of risk. What, what I do like is that the volume has been I mean, huge. We're midway in the week and we're already at average volume. So right. there's significant buying. Personally, I want to own more of the stock than what I already own. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hoping it does pull back a little bit. Um, but I mean, so, I mean, if, if sometimes if I'm, I think it's a little extended, but I see that there's something really bullish going on, I'll maybe buy a little less than I usually buy and, and wait for a consolidation mm -hmm. or a pullback. So again, depending on the person's risk level and their approach, uh, I don't think it's so far extended that it's not viable, but I know myself, if I can get a pullback to the 400 level with that, that double bottom breakout happened, I'll be, uh, I'll be looking to add more exposure. Yeah, and that's a good point. Sometimes just buying a little bit, it I, I, there's nothing like having some skin in the game to draw your attention to something. And so if it does do what you're expecting, it kind of follows along with your expectations. You can kind of you know start building your position a little bit more. Or uh, if if it does kind of start getting away from you, it's a little bit different if you're adding a little bit uh, to the position when you have some low average cost stock already, uh, it helps a little bit so that you're not starting out with, uh, with it necessarily too high. Yeah, completely, it completely changes your mindset. So I think that's really key. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's uh, take a look at another one. Uh, so NTRA, or did, was there anything on the uh, daily that you wanted to look at on Roku? I think the weekly spoke pretty well yeah. as to what's going on. Yeah. Okay. So here's here's NTRA. And you know, I gotta say that the medical area just seems like an area that is getting a lot more attention. Uh with right. with the reopening, uh, maybe there's some uh procedures that have been kind of put on the back burner and maybe some of those are happening. But uh tell us what you like about NTRA, Natura. So one thing I like about Natura, again, talking about the non-negotiables I mentioned before. This is really a sales-driven story, uh, but if you look, we have record sales this quarter, and actually we have three, three to four quarters of accelerating sales, uh, you know, uh, uh, each quarter. So that that's really the business is really picking up. And the way I view the chart here is basically, I think it's kind of like a base on base, or kind of like doing a, a cup with handle after it did an initial deep cup. It's a little bit strange on the weekly, but I think it's a little prettier on the daily. Uh, but Natera, I mean, their their background, their business is fantastic. I mean, I, my family, 
I, I have two young boys. Uh, my sisters all had children recently. And everyone I know who's had children recently is, is getting these genetic tests, you know, to, to check for, you know, potential issues with the child, mm -hmm. et cetera. And they're one of the leaders in that space. Uh, they've also expanded to oncology for, you know, uh, more precise uh, chemotherapy pattern um, usage. Uh, they're also working with companies developing drugs where you, they can do genetic testing to see which patients would work best with the medication that they're developing. So there's, there's kind of a lot of pipelines and interesting pipelines with huge addressable markets. Uh, so, you know, when you tie that story in together with accelerating sales and what I see as a, you know, kind of a base on base with a, a cup and handle. And if you look at the past few days, we've had some great volume on the daily chart as some good news came out in terms of um, one of their products. I think you can see that there. So mm -hmm. uh, I think this has a lot of potential to be a leader. Another stock in the space in Vitae seems to be lagging. This seems to be the stronger of the two. So now you mentioned that you're kind of uh, looking at this as more of a base on base rather than the double bottom pattern that we were talking about with Roku. And I guess one of the key elements there with our double bottom pattern that we like to see is that second leg undercut the first leg. And that's not something right. that we see here in Atera. Um, it, it just just fell short. But here again, I think it, it is interesting that if you do look at the weekly action and that volume, uh, you see that we've got that little orange balloon showing you that it's you know the heaviest volume in in the base there, and that's another example of that supporting action. You know, Absolutely. you've got the heaviest volume. It you know came down. Um, you know what was it? You know seven seven and a half percent the week before. The next week it only came down. Um, well, it, it came down eight percent. It looks like is that right? Yeah, eight and a half percent. But where it closed at was was very high in the range, so it did seem like it was it was trying to resist it, and that got it right back above the forty week moving average line, kind of right. uh, dipped below it, and then right back above it. Yeah, and the fact that it's back above its averages, you know, I won't trade anything below the two hundred day. I won't even look at it; it's it's off my scans, you know. So the fact that it got back above the fifty day moving average, it it paused. And now we're breaking higher with volume. I, I really like the look of the chart. I like the story. Really, really gets me excited is how the sales have been accelerating for you know three quarters in a row. So that usually is showing that the business is really picking up steam. Yeah. So I mean, you you just look at these numbers. So starting in June uh, 2020, you had 16%, then 26%, 35%, 62%. So again, that acceleration, um, you know, quarter after quarter is something that you just you don't want to ignore when you see that either on the revenue side or the earnings side. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, we got one more stock to cover. Um, that is FRHC. So this stock here is interesting. Most people ignore it. It's based in Kazakhstan. So I think that usually turns off most people. <laughs> but the reason that's why I like to deep dive into companies, you know, years ago, when I was focused more in the commodity space, uh, you know, the big Canadian uranium producer, Cameco, I think, I think you spoke yeah. about that recently on the show. Yeah, CCJ. Uh -huh. Yeah, right. They have a lot of mines with Kazatomprom because, you know, Kazakhstan is one of the, the, probably the world's largest uranium producer. And so when I used to, you know, Canada's up there too. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Canada's pretty good, pretty high on the uranium, but you're right. It Kazakhstan is, is, it is. is definitely a leader in that. But I remember looking into, you know, uh, Kazakhstan and, and, you know, the leader of that country really took on the Singapore model and they want to become kind of this free market capitalist um, state within its region and a leader in that. So they're really trying to open up Freedom Holding. They're a um, they're basically in the brokerage business, which is also getting tailwind similar to, you know, the Robinhood app, et cetera. And they have mind blowing earnings and sales growth. So obviously the market cap at three billion is smaller. There's a bit of geo geopolitical risk. But this chart, if it reminds me, if you know, if anyone wants to look back, I know William O'Neill showed the example of uh, Price Club when he first bought it. Right. 
Mm -hmm. it was kind of like week after week in a straight line up, just like this was on its, its first move higher. And I remember him saying that, you know, he was waiting for its first base and then a double bottom for him. And, you know, finally, just the same thing here. I was watching this take off. I said, oh, you know, I, I know that Kazakhstan is privatizing. So I should have maybe had an eye on this despite the low market cap. And here we are with a nice double bottom, huge volume on the upside, massive earnings and sales. Again, maybe you want to adjust for your position size if geopolitical risk bothers you. But I mean, in terms of the, the rest of the, you know, the, the technicals and fundamentals, it's pretty stellar in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Do you ever say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to correct for that extra volatility by giving the stock more room, maybe um, making my loss, you know, allow for a larger loss potential, you know, or where your stop is, or is it just about position size? How is, how is it that you mitigate that risk? I make a position size because for years when I started out and I was a market maker, our, our main space was the mining space. So there, so overnight there was always that risk that you know a mine a mine could flood or right. or you know a, a grade can come in lower than expected and the mine is has less gold than you thought and or you know the the country takes over nationalizes the mine. Yeah, so right. over, overnight, I mean whether your whether your stop is tight or not overnight that doesn't matter anymore. So mm -hmm. if ever there's something like that that does bug me, I'll I'll adjust by just reducing my size so that if something catastrophic happens. It'll be on a smaller part of the portfolio, but uh, sometimes these have you know great upside, so it's worth having some exposure to them. But again, it's kind of a personal decision as to how how much you want to position size. I think lowering your exposure is really the best way to reduce your risk. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, hey Matt, I got to say I really appreciate you coming back on the show. This has been a lot of fun. So I'm sure this is a you know something we can do again, uh, especially after your Caruso Insights comes out. So looking forward to seeing that education. Uh, when, when it becomes available. So thanks again for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Okay. So next week, Jim Golan, who is a partner at William Blair, he's going to be on the show. He's also a CFA. So make sure to tune in for that. Uh, that's it for this week for Investing with IBD. I'm Justin Nielsen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.